morning. Uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Trevor Killip, the pastor here. I'm glad you could join us uh, this morning um, and be here, despite the um, shockingly cold weather this weekend. It is fall, and it is that time of year. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his wisdom, discernment, uh, his truth, and grace. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for allowing us to wake up in warm beds this morning, to come into a church that is warm and heated, that protects us from the elements. Let us not take these blessings for granted. Let's give you praise for them, Father. Help us use them as you desire, wish for us to use them for your glory. Be with us today as we dive into your word. May you speak to each and every one of us. May we humbly submit our spirits, our souls before you, and may we hear what you have to say to all of us. Let it be full of truth, and let it be full of grace. And may you fill our souls up with this good news, so that it overflows, and we may be witnesses, we may be lights in the darkness. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Darnold Barnhouse was a pastor during World War II, um, and before World War II, he was on holiday in France with some family, and he was told not to go there because of the tensions that were mounting in Europe. And so when Germany threatened to invade, and they eventually did, he made his way back to London. And as he was making his way back to London, uh, the French military was mobilized. In fact, the whole nation was mobilized, where if you were of the right age and you were a male, you had to drop everything. Whatever you were doing, if you were plowing, you had to leave the plow, and you had to go, and you had to go mobilized. And he saw this as he was heading back to London. And once he was in London, amidst the chaos, he, he witnessed thousands of children being evacuated from London to go north into the countryside. And he saw all these kids, they, they were leaving their families, their parents behind. He saw one little child who had chocolate smeared on his face, and he had wet himself, and he began crying, but nothing could be done for this boy because he was just one among thousands of other little islands of misery on this great continent. Now eventually, Barnhouse makes his way to Ireland, and when, when he's there, he, he's going there because he's supposed to speak at a church, and this member comes to him, and he knows he's speaking the next day, and Barnhouse hasn't picked the text yet, and the man tells him, I hope your sermon is good because it might be the last that most of these men will hear because these men are on their way to war. Then the next morning, the regular minister of this church who picks Barnhouse up from the hotel thanks him well, and thanks God that he's not preaching today. He says, thank God I did not have to preach. The church will be full of lads who will never come back. I pray God will give you something for them. And it was September 3rd, 1939, and the text that he ended up choosing was Matthew 24, 6. And we're going to focus on Matthew 24, 6. We're going to focus on larger texts as well, but it's part of our passage today. He focuses on the command of Jesus, do not be alarmed. Amid the uncertainty and tragedies of wars, how can one say that? To men, young men, some older men. And how can Jesus say that? You know, just this week as I was leaving here uh, from a meeting, I witnessed a beautiful fireball up in the sky. I think it's the biggest I've ever seen. Bright white and then a beautiful bright orange against the black sky. And it reminded me of just how quickly things could change, right? 
we, we don't, we don't, we're not worried about fireballs crashing into you know, our neighborhoods, but it's possible, right? We don't, they, things like this could just happen without notice, like massive earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, or tsunamis, like the one in Sri Lanka in 2004 that killed over 200,000 people, right? December 26, people woke up day after Christmas, and many of them didn't go to bed that night. Over 200,000, without warning, without notice. See, we all wish that we could avoid such disasters and calamities, but the thing is, they're necessary, and they must happen. Some are like birth pains that will lead to greater, more tragic events. And this is what we are going to read about in Matthew, and we will see how we are to respond. And it's not just disasters of nature and men that we're worried about, but also false teachings and deceptions that Jesus warns us about in our text. It will be as if Satan and his armies are on a full press attack against God's church and his elect. So if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24. We're going to read verses 1 through uh, 28. Uh, there should be Bibles and seats around you. Um, and it should be starting around page 700, 701, I believe, if you're using one of the pew Bibles. Again, it's Matthew 24, and we're going to read verses 1 through 28. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here on one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, 
do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So make sure you keep your Bibles open. We are going to be dissecting this text as a whole. Uh, so as we go through the main points of today's sermon, we're going to be pulling from a variety of places. Any uh, passages that I, I read that are not from um, the passage today, they'll be on the screen. So keep it open so you can follow along and, uh, as always, check to make sure I'm, I'm not lying to you. So Matthew 24, this is the beginning of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's because there's a city on the Mount of Olives. And there is much to be studied in chapter 24 and 25. There is a lot here. It's an incredibly deep passage. It's a passage of, of prophecy. Jesus talks about the destruction of, of the temple, at the very least to some degree. But he also talks about the last days, which start from his resurrection and end when he returns. Now, some of these things are referencing the generalized reality of how things will be, the birth pains the famines, the wars, rumen of wars, and so forth, the presence of persecution on varying levels, and other things we're not sure when they will happen. The abomination of desolation from Daniel, that's a future event from the time that Jesus is talking to the disciples. It could be a reference to 70 AD. It might not be. The issue of prophecy, it's like viewing mountains off in the distance. It looks like one massive mountain. But as you get closer to it, you realize... It's actually smaller mountains before it with a bigger mountain in the backdrop. But from the distance, it looks like one mountain. And that's the issue with prophecy. You, we don't see those ridges. We don't see those mountains typically until we are there or until it's right before us. So some of these things that Jesus references are clearly at the end of time. And again, with prophecy, how time works, it depends on the prophecy. So Jesus could be talking about something that's soon like the destruction of the temple. At the same time, he could follow that up with something that's not going to happen until he returns. So clearly, we have some issues as to what is he talking about? When will these things actually happen? And how do we understand all of this? Regardless of how we interpret what Jesus is saying here, there are three principles that Jesus, I think, makes clear in this text that we need to understand and how we as believers are to act and respond in moments of great calamity and deception. Today I want us to think about how we are to stay grounded to the truth so that we are not to be led astray, how we are to stay calm and not to be alarmed by the events that might be going on in our lives and in the world around us, and how all that helps us to stay faithful to the faith so that ultimately we may endure to the end. So in order for us to be calm and faithful, we must be grounded, and we will start with that. And we see Jesus telling us to stay grounded in verses 4, 5, 10, 11, and 23 and 24. And the issue is because there will be false teachers, false Christs, false prophets that will rise up among us and outside of us, and they will lead many astray. And this will happen as persecution rises and as tribulation abounds and increases. False leaders of the faith will teach false things, and they do so to lead many astray, and they have the environment to do so because it's hard to be a believer. So they teach things that sound good, that sound easy. And there are three ways that they deceive the elect, if they could, and those who aren't part of the elect. 
The first is by their teaching. Good example of this today is homosexuality, right? It's not popular to speak out against same-sex attraction. It's, it's very unpopular to do so. In fact, it's considered hate speech in many places. There are movements to make it illegal to preach that from the pulpit. But the thing is, homosexuality, is, scripture's clear. It, it's a sin. But there will be false teachers out there that will get you to think that homosexuality is okay and that it's approved by God and that the word of God approves it. And that's how they deceive people. They dress up their lies in the context of truth. Satan is a good example of this. Think about how Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the desert. He didn't make stuff up. He used the word of God to try to deceive Jesus. And Jesus was only able to rebuke Satan by the word of God, by rightly handling the word of God. So many false teachers will use the word of God to deceive people. Satan himself appears as an angel of light, so we must use discernment and wisdom when we engage with teachers, any teachers, to include myself. I always encourage you and urge you to use discernment and to check what I say. It's God's word that we get the truth from the teaching from. You recognize what is false by knowing what is true. You can't, the Department of Treasury, when they look for counterfeit money, they don't study the different ways people counterfeit money. They just know what the real one looks like. You have to know what Christ looks like. You have to know what his word says and teaches. You have to know how to rightly handle the word of truth to recognize false teaching. This is why we must not let elegant language, dynamic speakers, or a speaker that appeals to our emotions, to lead us away, which is so popular nowadays. We must stay grounded in the truth, and that's a capital T, truth, which is the word of God, which is, as John 1 tells us, is Jesus Christ. So we must stop being deceived. We need to stop wasting time with such teachers who have these dynamic programs, and I get it. I mean, they're very appealing. But when you test them to scripture, they don't stand the test. So test everything. The second way these false teachers deceive the people is by their miracles. And these just aren't fake miracles. These are actual miracles and signs. Jesus tells us, verse 24, they will even impress the elect. But don't believe them. We have to get over the idea that miracles and signs are evidence of salvation. Or God's approval. They are not. Miracles and signs are not enough to believe somebody as a prophet of God or a person of God. We have to stop looking for that Christian experience or validation of our belief outside of Jesus Christ and his word. Now, you might be wondering, well, does God still do miracles? Absolutely. But are they necessary for salvation? No. You do not need to do a miracle to, to know that you're saved. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that you receive the gift of salvation, thus you perform miracles. It's not biblical. Are they signs of being saved? No. Matthew 7, 21, 23, Jesus makes this clear. There's other verses we could go to, but this is straightforward, and it's from the mouth of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Just because you can heal people, do miracles, doesn't mean you're doing the Father's will. Even demons can do miraculous things. So just because somebody is doing those things doesn't mean you should just flat out trust them. Test what they are teaching. The miracles of the apostles, because often that's the case, look at what the apostles did, they were given to them specifically to show that the authority of Jesus had been passed on to them to establish his church and the new covenant and the new age with the good news of the gospel. And Jesus, when he performed miracles, he didn't perform miracles to say, see what you can do. He performed miracles to show that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. Remember John the Baptist, when he sends his disciples, when he's in prison, and he's wondering, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? And what does Jesus tell him? What do the scriptures say about the Messiah? The blind see, the lame walk, and the good news is preached. So the purpose of the signs that Jesus did was to show that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and as in Matthew 9, he has the authority to forgive sins, because which is easier? To tell a man that his sins are forgiven, or for him to get up and walk when he's been paralyzed? Well, clearly to say his sins are forgiven, but so that you might know that he has authority to forgive sins from the Father, he tells the man, get up and walk. That was the purpose of healing, not so that we can heal bodies in this age now and that, and that we can do these miraculous wonders. That wasn't the purpose. Again, miracles do, and they can happen. They can happen through us, definitely happens through prayer, but they are not required, and they are not signs of assurance. If people who will, at the end of days, be cast into the hellfire, people who have done miracles, we should have no confidence in them. Just based off of Matthew 7, 21, 23. No confidence in them. The third way that false teachers lead people astray is by their secret knowledge. In verse 26, they claim that Christ is in the wilderness. They claim he is in the inner rooms as if he's been hiding out from us. It's a, it's a sort of Gnosticism, which is, which is a heresy. That in order to know God, you must have this secret knowledge. That you must have this knowledge that you clearly don't have, or you would be with Christ right now, but I have, and I'm going to share it with you, or you must do this in order for the, the Spirit to work in you, or you must have this key to secretly understand the teaching of Scripture. Again, this is why being grounded in His Word is so important. Even today, we have many who will tell you that in order to know Christ, to experience Christ in your life, you have to leave the Bible behind and allow the Holy Spirit to come to you unfiltered and unadulterated as if you can know Christ apart from his word. But these people clearly don't know the scriptures. And as such, they don't know the power of God and how scripture is authoritative. It is infallible. And it is fully sufficient. And Jesus is quite clear. He continually teaches that to know Jesus, to know him, search the scriptures. And that people won't come to faith because of the resurrection if they don't already believe Moses and the prophets. And Jesus says that when he does return in the end, it's not going to be some secret. Verse 27, it's going to be an obvious sign. It's like lightning that strikes in the east, but you can see the light of it all the way across the sky to the other side. It's, it's an obvious sign. It will happen without warning, but when it happens, nobody's going to be left in the dark about it. Everyone will know it. It won't be a secret. 
See, if we are led astray, then we have no firm foundation. We have no rock. Again, going back to Matthew 7, end of the Sermon on the Mount, 24, 27, which follows the verses I just read about doing miracles and not doing the Lord's will. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. When events of great calamity, when the end of days comes, when it's happening, you have to stay grounded to Christ. If you're not built on that foundation of rock, you're going to cave in. You're going to be led astray. When the heat in the oven increases, you're going to want to leave. <clears throat> so we must stay grounded to Christ. We must stay connected to him through faithful obedience in his word. Because if we struggle with this, again, we will be deceived. and It will be more challenging for us to stay calm during such uncertain times. And in verse 6, Jesus tells us, do not be alarmed. But in the positive way, stay calm, right? He's saying, don't panic. This is what Darner Bonhaus was telling those men on that morning. Don't, don't panic. I know you're going to war. Many of you are going to die. Think about it. In, in, in the shadow of the great war, World War I, children of these veterans, fully knowing what a war entails, he's telling them, don't panic. Don't be alarmed. And Jesus tells us wars are going to happen. <coughs> Kingdoms will rise up against each other. Famines, earthquakes, persecution. We will be hated. We will be deceived, betrayed. We will even be killed. Lawlessness will increase. The love of society will grow cold and callous. And Jesus, in verses 15 through 21, talks about a specific judgment, one of great terror that will occur without warning. And he uses strong language describing how horrible it will be. He says, pray that it doesn't happen to you during winter or on the Sabbath. And how horrible it will be for women who are pregnant and nursing. Now, we can debate on what exactly this is talking about. Because he is talking about specific events. But what event exactly is up to debate. Some see it as a prophetic announcement on the temple in Jerusalem, 70 AD, when the Romans came in and they sacked and they destroyed it. Though there are many who do not see it as, as a sign on the temple, but they see it even at the end of the ages, like at the end, right before Jesus comes back. And there's good reason for that. And others see it as a double fulfillment, right? So like uh, the, the uh, virgin birth, that is a prophecy that's considered to be double fulfillment. It, it was Isaiah talking about an actual virgin who's going to give birth, but he's also prophesying for uh, Jesus hundreds of years later. So this prophecy here, many think it is the destruction of the temple, but they also see it as something that's going to happen at the very end of the days. Regardless, though, this event is swift, it's tragic, and it's horrible. And it comes without warning because he says, just leave, just drop what you're doing, don't gather your things, you just need to flee. And all these things, this judgment, the wars, the rumor of wars, the persecution, the famines, the earthquakes... Verse 6 tells us it must take place. This is just how things are in our 
in our world, in this fallen world, and just how things will be as the end comes closer. But how is anyone to stay calm? How could Jesus say, do not be alarmed? Well, we stay calm, simply put, because, yeah, Jesus says, he tells us, do not be alarmed. It's pretty straightforward. But if Jesus is not the Son of God, then what he's saying is, a cr is cruel and deserving of hellfire. But if Jesus is who he is, then we have every reason to trust it and to believe it. After all, what John writes in, in John 1, he tells us uh, he created all things. Nothing was created that nothing that was created was created apart from Jesus, and in Jesus is life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that. John wrote John 1.5, that darkness that has not overcome Jesus, or, or the light that's in Jesus, he wrote that after Jesus was crucified on the cross. So ponder that. John witnessed what happened to Jesus and says, no, darkness has not overcome it because of the resurrection. So if we believe Jesus of Scripture, then nothing that can happen on this world should cause us to panic or to be alarmed. We can be calm when our government becomes increasingly more hostile to our faith and religious liberty. I'll give you an example that just happened this week. Uh, one of the Democratic candidates wants to get rid of tax-exempt status for churches, colleges, uh, any organization that's a nonprofit that does not support the LGBTQ agenda. If you speak out against it, you should lose the tax status. And granted, as Americans with our democratic um, rights and responsibilities, we should speak up for what we believe in and defend that to the utmost. But when it comes down to it, if we lose that battle politically, democratically, let them take it. We shouldn't be alarmed. We shouldn't be concerned. Let them take it. More so than that, if they ask us for our lives on an issue that they say you need to compromise your teaching of Scripture, you need to compromise what Jesus stands for, or we will kill you, we should say to them, please, take it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, this is what they do. Nebuchadnezzar, right? God, they say you need to worship me. They say, no, God will deliver us, and if he doesn't, so be it. We as Christians should be doing the same thing. Because we don't live for here. We don't live ultimately for America. We're called to bless America by our presence. And because the elect are around, the days are cut short. So our presence is an act of mercy because we do cut the days short of tribulation. We should bless America while we're here. We should be active, vibrant citizens. But ultimately, we live for eternity. We live for the kingdom. We live for the life that follows death. So death is a blessing to us in a way that it brings us to Christ. It brings us to what we are created for. So we can be calm. We be calm when terrorists of various kinds threaten great acts of terror throughout the world. Or natural disasters seem to be increasing and becoming all the more devastating. When people say, what's the world coming to? We should say, Jesus Christ. It's in scripture. And that's a good thing. We, we, like, that, that isn't something that we should be like, oh man, you know, what's going on in the world today? We should be like, Jesus Christ is coming. He's right around the corner. Look how You read the headlines today? It's clear Jesus is coming because it's getting bad out there. Like, it's, it's a sad thing, and when we, we speak out against it, by the same time, we have that hope and that joy knowing he's coming, and he told us beforehand. He said so himself. See, I've told you beforehand. No surprises here. He's fully aware of it. 
So even if the economy collapses or a, me or a medical epidemic breaks out, stay calm. Be cool about it. And we could do this, and I'll tell you why in a moment, actually. I don't want to get ahead of my notes here. But what helps us stay calm? Because what helps us stay calm helps us stay faithful. We must understand that if we are not grounded, if we do not stay calm, it will be hard for us to stay faithful to the end. It will be hard for us to endure. And those who endure, they are the ones who inherit the kingdom. If you do not endure, you do not inherit the kingdom. So we must stay faithful. Verse 13. Now, to endure, to persevere is proof of one's salvation. It is not a means of which one is saved. We have to differentiate there. Enduring does not save you, but enduring is a sign that you are saved, that you know Christ. It is a fruit of the believer. Therefore, do not be led astray. Stay grounded. And we have this tension here. It's clear in the New Testament. Paul encourages us in Philippians 2.12 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So at the same time, the work of our salvation is on Christ. But at the same time, because we are believers, we need to work. We need to strive to endure. There is that tension there because if the Spirit's in you, you will desire to walk in the light. And to walk in the light in a world of darkness is hard, especially when we still have fallen bodies. So do not be alarmed. Stay calm in all things. Now, perhaps you're disappointed about what I've talked about so far in this message. Perhaps you were hoping I would go into great detail and exposit this text of prophecy and, and tell you how all this is going to break out and, and connect it with what's going on in Israel and Iran and Turkey and how this is all leading to Armageddon, whatever. Perhaps that's what you were looking for. You were looking for the signs of his coming and how to recognize the events in real time. If you want to do that, Go to Dave's life group, because they just started a series on eschatology. And he gets into the nitty-gritty of it. So go to his group. You can talk to him about that. I mean, you can talk to me, too, about it. But he's doing, like, an actual study on it. It's not that I don't believe those things are wrong. They're not. It's good to talk about those things. It's good to wrestle over prophecy. It's to talk about the hope that awaits us. But on Sunday mornings, I'm in the practice of showing you Christ. And how we can find Christ in these moments. Jesus doesn't tell these things to the disciples so they can continually be looking at the sky, anticipating his, his return, looking for signs of his return. It's like they do in Acts 1. He ascends to the sky after he tells them, hey, go be my witnesses. Go to the ends of the earth. And they're just looking at the sky. And the angels are like, dude, what are you doing? He's gone. He's going to come back the same way. And you'll know it. Just carry on with the work. We need to stop looking at the signs. See, Jesus told us these things, and he told the disciples these things, so that we would endure, that we would know that he knew how bad it would get, that he's not surprised by it. It's not like God doesn't know the future. He knows the future fully, completely. He's not surprised by it. So we shouldn't worry and ponder, oh, God, do you know what's going on? He knows what's going on. Verse 25, I have told you ahead of time. See, look, I've told you ahead of time. I know this is going to happen. Some of us spend more time interpreting the events of our day and trying to connect them with the return of Christ than you do interpreting the teachings of Scripture and how it ought to shape how you live. And eschatology, the study of end times, helps us, helps shape how we live, 
And I hope that this morning shows us that, that when we look to the, how things are going to end and how horrible it's going to get, ultimately points to Christ and how we can maintain our faith and the hope that we have in light of how horrible it gets and will get. Christ is the main thing, regardless of what is going on. I have heard, unfortunately, pastors preach their understanding of current events and how it lines up with Scripture and how they believe the return is near, like it's within the next 10 years. Therefore, we have to evangelize with earnest. We don't evangelize because the end is near. We evangelize because it's true. We evangelize because of the good news. We evangelize because of the joy that's to be found in having eternal life with the Father and to be reconciled. It's not that the end is, the end is near for all of us. We're all a heartbeat away from heaven or hell. We evangelize because it's good and it's true. We shouldn't have to wait for certain signs to happen to motivate us to warn people. You never know when time's going to be up for you or for your brother or sister who's lost. Spread the word. Tell your coworkers. Be the light. The day of the Lord will come eventually for all of creation. And we're going to talk more about that, the coming of the Son of Man, next week in more detail. But again, no one here knows when your final breath is going to be. And that's going to be your day of the Lord. So we must be ready. And we will be ready. If we are faithful to the end, and as the breath escapes our lungs, or as persecution comes to us, or as Jesus Christ suddenly comes, it will not be a moment of fear or uncertainty for us, but one of confidence rested in the work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even a moment of joy as we recognize that breath is leaving us, life is leaving us, and we are going to him. So how do we endure? How do we stay grounded? How do we stay faithful? There's three ways I want to cover. Prayer. You have to pray. Your life has to be bathed in prayer. We don't give prayer oftentimes the time that it deserves. We have an opportunity to speak to the creator of all things. Ponder that. The one who created all things, the God who has always existed, always has been, always will be, always is, who he is, never changing, exists outside of time, but yet is in time with us, created all things, massive stars that dwarf our solar system. Just ponder that. You have place at his table but we don't really treat him like that when we go to prayer it's prayer is a privilege it's a blessing it's not some meaningless liturgical practice or some basic requirement of your faith so our lives they need to be bathed in prayer because apart from him we cannot please him and we will not please him if we never talk to him second we must know his word how can you pray if you don't know him? How do you know what to pray for if he doesn't tell you? How do you know how to live if you don't listen when he speaks? God speaks to us through his word. If you do not know it, then you do not, do not know God. And God does not abide in you. John 15, the first 17 verses of the chapter. It's clear. If you don't know the word of God and you don't obey it, you do not know God. You cannot abandon scripture and pretend to know God. Jesus is clear on that. First John is clear on that. But as important as it is to be bathed in prayer and to know his word, we must have fellowship. 
we must have fellowship with one another. And I think this is often lost in society today, especially in a society that loves things to be done online, done privately, text message. We don't like to talk to each other. We don't like to make phone calls. We like our privacy in our space. And when I mean fellowship, I'm not talking about some random social gathering where we just get together and we watch a football game or we're just having fun. I mean life on life that is bathed in the knowledge of the Word of God. Life on life that is found in the context of the teaching of Scripture. Christian fellowship is fellowship where we gather together, we do, we watch a football game, we, we do whatever, we do those things, but we do it as we edify, we build one another up, we talk, we praise about God, we pray with one another. How we do life together, that's the radical witness, especially nowadays, that the world needs. Racial reconciliation, that needs to happen in the church. The church should be the model of that. We're all one in Christ. It's not Bible knowledge. It's not piety. Not even rigorous devotion to obedience. But how we love one another that will change the world. As the power of Christ, through the spirit that dwells within us, is seen and witnessed by how we love one another and we obey the one another commands of the New Testament. If your life is steeped in prayer and bathed with the word of God, you will desire fellowship. You will desire to be with family. A believer desires to be with his new adopted family, with the bride of Christ, not apart from it. You want to know Christ, you have to get to know his bride-to-be. Life is hard, it's challenging, it's confusing. If you're not in a body you will be led astray because our emotions are fickle and they are easily deceived. So we need one another to encourage each other, to support one another, to correct for teaching, for rebuke. And we do this when we disciple each other. And the question, I have one of the many questions I have, but for this morning for you all is, are you being discipled by someone? And are you discipling someone? This is Matthew 28, 19, 20. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You will grow in Christ when you have somebody who is mature in the faith pouring into you. And you will grow in Christ, perhaps even more so, when you are pouring into somebody else. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to have the Spirit of Christ in you. You just need to have love this person, pray for this person, and a desire to know God's word with this person, person and, and to share these things. Discipling is this intentional relationship of doing life together, not just in the context of life groups. Life groups is great, it's wonderful, but this is like one-on-one, -on -one, three o'clock in the morning, you call this person up, I have an issue. Whatever it is, this is the life that God calls us to. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 tells us we are to encourage to gather regularly to support one another. Later in Hebrews 12, 1, 2, we are encouraged to endure because of the witness of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have that great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, who have suffered, who have died, who endured to the end for the faith. Therefore, we ought to, and we should not be living in silos, but we should be actively involved in the faith. If you live in a silo, persecution will probably never come to you because you're in, you're in a silo. And it's a blessing to be persecuted. 
the apostles. I mean, read Acts. You should, I, I would encourage you to read a chapter of Acts every day and just repeat it monthly for like a year. And it's a huge blessing. But in Acts, you see the apostles rejoicing because they have been found worthy of persecution. We're, we're worried about tax-exempt status. Think about that. It's money. It, disciples, they were flogged. They were beaten. Some were stoned. And they rejoiced at that. And we're stressing out about tax-exempt status. We should say, bring it. Let us be found worthy of persecution. If it brings him glory, and it's, if it's his will. So let us throw off the weight of sin, focusing on the race before us, as Paul tells us to in Philippians 3. Just as Christ was obedient to the point of death on the cross, as again Paul tells us in Philippians 2, as we walk in the faith, staying grounded in his word, so that we may endure to the end, not alone, but with one another. Just as these men who were going off to war had one another. We are in a spiritual war, and we're talking about et eternal matters, not just physical matters that are temporary, but eternal matters. A war that's greater than any world war, but a war that's already been won. So let us go forth knowing that victory is there, knowing that we have that assurance. Do it together as we walk with Christ. Life is hard, it's not easy, and it's incredibly uncertain at times. But we do have the one certainty the rock, the author of it all, Jesus Christ. So let's rejoice in that. Let's worship together in that. Let's pray for one another. And let's teach, correct, rebuke, and exhort one another. And let, let's not let sin burden us anymore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your son and all that he has done for us in this uncertain world with so many things that are outside of our control. Help us walk faithfully and step to your will. Help us know your will. Draw us to your word so that we can know that will. Bring us to our knees in prayer so that the Holy Spirit and your Son can intercede for us. We can be transformed by your will that we may know it, that we may discern what is perfect and pleasing in your eyes. Help us engage with one another, Father, and help especially those of us who might have wounds, scars, from past experiences in, in engaging with fellowship. People are, we are messy. We are messy creatures. We do dumb things sometimes. We say dumb things sometimes, and we hurt one another, sometimes intentionally and not intentionally. Give us the grace to forgive those who have hurt us. Give us the spirit to heal us from those wounds and that we can move forward and engage in fellowship and discipleship with others. Help us seek out our brothers and sisters in Christ to help them grow. They can help us grow, Father. And we do this because we want to be mature. We want to be made complete. And we want to be made more like your son. And we want when times of calamity and uncertainty strike that we can stay grounded, that we won't panic, and that we will be faithful and endure to the end. Give us that spirit. Help us be diligent in our study of your word. Help us strive and, and, and to seek the upward calling from heaven. You know our pains this morning. Help us know the joy of fellowship with you. 
by walking in the light with you. Help us be obedient to you, Lord. Help us when temptation comes, Father. Help us recognize the lies that exist. Help us cling to the truth and to your grace. Remind us daily of the gospel. Remind us of how you have forgiven us all of our sins. All of our sins, past, present, future. You have blotted them out, Father. We thank you for that. We thank you for the blood of Christ that covers us. Help us not just say these words, but help us live this reality out. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that was sent to secure us and to protect us and to seal us for all eternity. And all this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.